Well, good morning. Come on, good morning. All right, all right. How is everyone? Everybody doing good? Everybody had a great week, right? I had a terrible week. I'm just telling you that now. Terrible week. But we're not going to get into all of that. Um, our world is not easy at times. Um, our world, in our world, we face many, many troubles and many frustrations. And last week we started in the uh, the book of Habakkuk here. And as we started in the book of Habakkuk here, we saw a man who was living in a very difficult time. In a time where the law of God was being perverted, it was being oppressed, it was not going out, it was not doing what it was intended to do. And the leadership of Israel was responsible for this. We talked a little bit about the history of of what was going on during this time. And Habakkuk cries out. And he cries out one word. He cries out violence. He says, how long, O Lord? How long will this continue? How long will oppression continue? How long will injustice continue? How long will violence reign on this earth? And God answers. God answers Habakkuk, and he answers him just like Habakkuk asks. He listens to what Habakkuk asks, and he answers him in a time frame. And he pays attention to what Habakkuk has to say. And Habakkuk wants justice, is what he wants. And God says, I am going to give justice. I am going to bring a greater nation against you, a stronger nation called the Chaldeans or the Babylonians, they're going to come in and they are going to enact their justice. And when they come, they bring violence. He talks about their their horses and their horsemen and how violent they are and how driven they are. And Habakkuk answers and says, whoa, God, hang on, time out. I I want justice and you're saying you're going to bring more violence? God, how? How can you, who see things clearly, are of purer eyes? How can you use a nation more wicked than us to judge us? How is this possible? And he's deeply troubled and deeply concerned over what God has told him he will do. We learned four things about God last week. First, we learned that God hears us when we cry out. It may seem like it's taking a long time, but the way that God answers Habakkuk here indicates that he is paying attention. He is paying attention to the details of what Habakkuk is saying. We learned also that God is in control. Even though this world might seem like it's completely out of control, even though it might seem like the wrong people are in charge, even though it may seem like we are completely powerless to enact any real change in our situation, God is in control. We also see that that God judges wickedness. He does. It may not necessarily be the way that we would want that judgment to be dished out. It may not necessarily be in the timing that we wish that that judgment is dished out. But again, God is in control, and he judges the wicked. 
And the fourth thing that we learned was that God's answers can sometimes be shocking. They can shake us to the core. We're going to see an example of that today in someone's life who who received the message and literally it shook him to the core. We're actually going to see it a few times today. But we end our, our first message here last week with Habakkuk basically making a statement at the end. And his statement is in chapter 2, verse 1 here. So open up to chapter 2, verse 1 of Habakkuk. And in verse 1 he says, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me. And what answer I will give concerning my what? Complaint. Habakkuk ends here and he says, Lord, you've told me that the Chaldeans are coming. God, you told me that they're coming. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go look for them. I'm going to go up on the tower and I am going to look out. You told me to look at the nations. I am going to look at the nations and I'm going to look specifically for this judgment coming. But he also says something else. And this gives us a little insight into Habakkuk and who he was. We didn't mention this last week, um, but does anybody know what the word Habakkuk, what his name actually means? You guys ever see... um, I can't believe it was a comedy, but there was a, uh, there was a very popular television show back in the probably late 70s, early 80s. Um, it was a comedy show uh, about a medical unit, comedy show about a medical unit during the Vietnam, or the, I'm sorry, the Korean War, MASH. And in MASH, there is a character who has a nickname. Now, Habakkuk is nothing like this character, but it embodies exactly what his nickname was. There was an individual who was a little strange. He was always trying to get out of the war. Does anybody know what that character's name was? Clinger. That's what Habakkuk means. It means clinger. It's one who holds fast. It's one who hugs. It's one who stays close. And that's going to play into God's message to Habakkuk today. What Habakkuk is saying by standing on his watch post is, Lord, I believe that they're coming. God, I believe that what you said is going to happen, but I'm not happy about it. And he ends here and he says, I will look to see uh, what you will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. He knows that he's complaining a little bit. He knows that he's kind of calling God out on the carpet just a little bit. God, you, you have pure eyes. You can see. Why are you sending this wicked nation? I, I, I have concerns, God, about your plan for what you are going to accomplish here. Habakkuk knows that there's a chance that God's not going to be happy, that he's not necessarily happy with God's answer. He says, I'll stand and I'll watch. So verse 2 here. And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who hears it. 
For the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. See, God tells Habakkuk something very, very important here. Remember in chapter 1, he said, If I told you what was going to happen, you wouldn't believe it. So what God says is, listen, I'm going to give you a vision. I'm going to show you exactly what is going to happen here. And he says, what I want you to do, Habakkuk, when you see this vision, I want you to write it down. Write it down on these tablets here. Write it down on tablets and make it plain. Now this word plain here, there's much conjecture over what it means. Um, it's, It's a little difficult because some of this prophecy here, it's all in poetry. And all of us would say that poetry, if anything, is sometimes not plain, right? It's not obvious. We have, to, we have to kind of discern the meaning here. But the word plain in Hebrew here has this connotation of large, loud, proclaiming it. Make it known to everyone. Habakkuk continue, or God continues answering Habakkuk here, and he says, so that he may run who reads it. Now we find something very interesting about Habakkuk and the poetry that he uses here, the words that he uses, that God inspires him to use here. This word runs with it can mean one of two things, and both of them apply to Habakkuk's message. The first one, it means literally run. That when they hear this, they will run away. They will be so scared that they run away from this. The second meaning is that those who hear it may run with it. Not run from it, but run with it. Meaning that when they hear this, when they, when they, read, when they read what the prophet has written, that they would take it hold on to it, that they would cling to it and go other places and tell other people about it. And that those people would do the same exact thing so that he may run who reads it. Verse 3, for still the vision awaits an appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely not delay. See, again, God answers Habakkuk in a time frame here. He says, listen, Habakkuk, I'm giving you this vision. But what I want you to do is I want you to wait. It's not going to be long. It may seem long. It may seem slow in coming, Habakkuk, but it doesn't lie. I'm telling you the truth. This is coming. This is going to happen. Write it down. Again, God listens to the way Habakkuk has complained. He listens to the way that he's asked. And he says, I'm going to answer you in the same way that you asked me. Be patient, Habakkuk. The other reason for the delay here, and this is going to seem difficult for us, But in teaching patience to Habakkuk, this is actually a gift from God. You say, Billy, I I don't like being patient. 
I don't like being patient. I hate being patient. I hate waiting. God says to Habakkuk, listen, you're going to have to wait a little bit. It's going to happen. This is a gift from God. This is a gift from God in that God is giving time for the righteous that are in Israel to hear this message. For it to be spread. I think all of us in this room who know Christ would say that God's word, it's a gift to us. See, this is what God is giving Habakkuk here. He's giving him a vision. He's giving him his word, and he's saying, oh, you have no idea of what I'm telling you, but it is a tremendous gift. Sometimes when we read verses in the Bible and we talk about um, visions and people talking to God, we just kind of, we're like, yeah, that, that happens in the Bible. But we forget about the tremendous privilege, the tremendous miracle it is to commune with God, to receive his word. He says, Habakkuk, I'm giving you a gift. It's going to delay a little bit, but it's coming. Wait for it. The other connotation here, he says, it hastens to the end, it will not lie. God's will, God's will is an unstoppable force. It will continue. No matter what happens on this earth, no matter how bad it seems to get, it will continue to hasten to the end. It will continue to move forward. Even if you think your world is falling apart, Habakkuk, I'm still in control. I still know what's going on. Verse 4 here. And this is where we're going to get into the meat of the message here. Verse 4. Behold, it starts off, right? Behold. What does it mean to behold? What does it mean to behold something? To look at it, right? To see it. So what do we know here? Well, this is the beginning of the vision. This is the very beginning of the vision that God is giving Habakkuk. He says, Habakkuk, look. Look at what I am about to show you. He says, behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Who is God talking about here? This is a, this is a question that we have to answer, especially in the first part of the verse here. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. Well, is he, is he talking about Habakkuk? Well, that, that doesn't really make a ton of sense. I mean, I know Habakkuk is, is complaining here, but it, it doesn't really fit the context. Um, why doesn't God just say you, you know, at this point? Behold, your soul is puffed up. It is not upright within you. Why does he say him? We'll find out in a second here. But the righteous shall live by his faith. The beginning of the verse, we're going we're gonna to step back here. The beginning of the verse, God is talking about Babylon. How do we know that God is talking about Babylon here? We have to go back to what Habakkuk asked. And he said, God, you are of purer eyes. 
How can you look idly at traitors? This is the question that Habakkuk asks God. Why are you allowing this wicked nation to come in? And God is giving him the answer at the beginning of the vision here. He's saying, listen, Babylon, he, behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not right within him. God is assuring Habakkuk that his eyes are clear. He knows exactly what he's looking at. We're going to look at a a chapter of Daniel here in a second, and we are going to see this exactly play out. This verse is going to come to fruition right before our eyes. This vision is going to come to fruition right before our eyes in Daniel chapter 5. Behold, the righteous shall live by his faith. Just a side note here. Um, This second half of the verse here has been used many times. We just read in the book of Romans here, chapter 1, as William read, we read that the righteous shall live by faith. Martin Luther would proclaim that the righteous shall live by faith. There are verses in the Bible that talk about the righteous living by faith. But this little phrase here in the Hebrew has a connotation that carries with it a remembrance to the book of Genesis. The way Habakkuk structures the words here is supposed to remind the Israelites of a man, a very important man in their life who heard the word of God and obeyed. And that man is Abram. Abraham. Little interesting side note though. Anybody remember where Abraham was originally from? Chaldees? Ur of the of the Chaldees? Oh, who's who's coming to destroy Israel? Oh, the Chaldeans! Oh, Abraham's neighbors are coming to uh, to to come and destroy all of, of Israel and, and take it over. Again, we, we pointed to this last week, but Habakkuk knows. The word of God. He's giving this vision to the people so that they would remember the history here. He says the righteous shall live by faith. Well, we have to ask ourselves, faith in what? We, we've already determined that the, the unrighteous are, are proud. They're puffed up. They're arrogant. But the righteous, they live by faith. Faith in what? Well, if we believe what God told Habakkuk before, it's faith in the words of God. That's how the righteous survive. That's how the righteous move forward, is they cling to the word of God. God is saying here in this vision, listen, those who will live, will live because they read this vision and they run with it. They hear my word. They hear the gift that I'm giving to them, and it changes their lives. It changes their hearts. Again, this is so significant because this is exactly what's happening to Habakkuk. Habakkuk has concerns, a burden. He has a complaint, and his heart is going to be changed by this vision. The righteous who are still alive during this time will hear this vision, and their hearts will will be changed. See, this is what God hopes for our life. God wants for our life. This is the will of God in our lives, that we hear the word of God 
and by hearing, we do the word of God. It changes our lives and our perspective. Habakkuk is going to have his perspective changed here. But the righteous shall live by faith. Then it seems like God jumps around here and he goes to verse 5 and it says, Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who's never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol, like death, he never has enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own people. Why does Habakkuk talk about wine here? I mean, he's talking about arrogance and pride. Why start to pick on wine? And he says, wine is a traitor. Remember, we've heard this word before. Chapter 1 and verse 13. Chapter 1, verse 13. Habakkuk says, listen, Lord, why do you look idly at traitors? Speaking about Habakkuk. Again, we see that God is listening in detail to what Habakkuk has said. And he's using his words. And he's saying, listen, Habakkuk, I am of purer eyes. But those who drink wine, they don't see things right. They don't perceive the right things. What do we know about wine? Well, it betrays. It betrays your senses. It even betrays your body. How many of us have watched a movie, um, maybe an older movie, because this has since been debunked, but you'll get a, a group of maybe, um, I don't know, cattle ranchers or whatever, and they get caught in a snowstorm, and they've got, you know, they've got some, some strong drink, you know, and they're, they're freezing, they're cold. And one cowboy says to the other, hey, you know what, I got some of this, this will keep you warm. He reaches in, he pulls out his strong drink, and he hands it to them. And they drink it. And they're like, yeah, I feel warm now. Actually, what you're doing is you're actually freezing yourself faster at that point. You can't feel anything. Your nerve endings become numb. But your blood becomes incredibly thin at that point. Uh, you know, Stephen Page and I, we are, uh, we're tattoo people, okay? One of the things that people try to do when they get a tattoo is they'll go out and they will get inebriated because they don't want to feel the pain of the tattoo. They don't want to go through it. Any tattoo artist will tell you, please do not go out and get drunk before you come and get a tattoo, okay? Because you will bleed everywhere. You will continue to bleed. It thins your blood. It deceives. It distorts reality. It can consume you. And ultimately, it owns you. But why wine? God, why are you picking on wine here? Turn with me to Daniel chapter 5. Daniel chapter 5. I, I absolutely love the book of Daniel. It's one of my favorite books in the Bible. Daniel chapter 5 here. And we have King Belshazzar. Anybody uh, remember what Daniel's name was changed to? Yeah, right? Pretty close. Right? Pretty, pretty close to this name here. But we have King Belshazzar. 
And he makes a great feast for a thousand lords and drank wine in front of a thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded the vessels of gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought. That the king and his lords, his wives, his concubines might drink from them. And they brought them in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple the house of, uh, in the house of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his lord and his wives and his concubines drank from them. What's going to happen here in the rest of the verses is as King Belshazzar is having a great feast and drinking much wine, and being consumed here, a hand is going to appear. And it's going to write a few words on the wall. Mine, mine, tikle, parsing. And it says that the king is shooken, shooken, shaked, I don't know, some English word. He's scared. It says his, his face changes color. He loses all color. He's so concerned with what is going on. He calls all the magicians. He calls Chaldeans. He calls anybody he can. He says, somebody come tell me what's going on. What does this mean? I have no idea. I'm scared. The queen raises up after no one understands. The queen raises up and she says, hey, there's a guy. It's funny how in the midst of a foreign regime, there's always, uh, in the Bible, there's always a guy. You know, it was Joseph, right? Remember Joseph in the Old Testament? He was the guy that everybody forgot and then they remembered. Now it's Daniel. The queen says, hey, there's a guy that helped your dad. When your dad had, you know, all kinds of issues, he, he helped him and he understood the spirit of the gods is in him. Go find Daniel. The king finds Daniel, and Daniel's brought before him. And he says, Daniel, if you can do this, I'll give you a robe, I'll give you a necklace, I'll I'll make you awesome, you'll be great. And Daniel says, sure. No, Daniel says, you know what? Keep your gifts. Keep your gifts. Give them to someone else. I'm going to tell you what they mean here, what these words mean. Verse 20 here of chapter 5. Actually, go back to verse 17. Daniel says, Then Daniel answered and said to the king, Let your gifts be for yourself. Give your rewards to another. Nonetheless, I will read the writing and make known the interpretation to the king. O king, the Most High gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. Verse 18 here, look, who gave it to Nebuchadnezzar? God gave it to Nebuchadnezzar. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, languages trembled and feared before him. Hey, Belshazzar, you're scared now? You're afraid of a little writing on the wall? You're afraid of a hand here? God made your dad so powerful that nations trembled before him. Whom he would, he killed. And whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up. And whom he would, he humbled But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened. Whoa, wait a minute. Go back to verse 4. 
What do we know about Babylon in Habakkuk chapter 4? That they're puffed up, that they're arrogant. Daniel says it right here. He says, listen, when your dad got puffed up and arrogant, so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne, and glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind and made like that of a beast. And his dwelling with the wild donkeys, he was fed like grass. I'm sorry, he was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over whom he will. And you, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew it, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of the house have been brought to you. You and your lords, your wives, your concubines have drunk wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver, gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways you have not honored. Then from his presence his hand was set, and the writing was inscribed, and this is the writing that was inscribed, mine, mine, tikle, parson, this is the interpretation of the matter. Mine, God has numbered your days and your kingdom is brought to an end. Oh. First word. I'm done. It's over. Maybe there'll be more good news, right? Maybe it'll get better. Tikle, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Oh no, <laughs> it's still bad. Parse, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then Belshazzar gave command and Daniel was clothed with, a purple, with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in all the kingdom. Verse 30. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Guys, this is the very last day of Babylon. God's word is true. It doesn't lie. What... Habakkuk is, is saying here, what he's seeing here is he is seeing the future of Babylon. This vision is going to encompass what the ultimate end of Babylon is. And in Daniel chapter 5, we have it. In one day, in the morning, in the afternoon, whenever they started drinking, whatever, they are having a good time. They're living it up. It's 1999. No, they're living it up, right? They're loving it. It's New Year's Eve. Ah, everybody have fun. Hey, let's call the women in. All right, let's get them drunk. Hey, let's have a big party. Call everybody in. It's going down. I'm yelling timber. No, it's going down. Come on, let's have a good time. And then God shows up at the party with his hand. And he says, hey, everybody out. <laughs> Cops are here. No, everybody out. Mine, mine. 
You're done. Days are over. I've judged you, and you've been found wanting. And everything that you love, everything that you hold dear, is just going to be given to someone else. Habakkuk is going to continue here. And he is going to talk about five woes. And we're going to move quickly through this. Even though I wish we had more time to dive into it, I don't know that it's necessarily super profitable to get into uh, all of the minutiae of this, all of the, um, all the details of it. Um, but some things to remember here. In verse 6 he says, Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles and say to him, Woe. Woe. This word woe here, it's a taunt. It's not a sorrowful, hey, I'm sorry to do this, but this is what's going to happen. No, it's God taunting Babylon. He's saying, listen, this is about to happen. You're going down. Woe. To him who reaps what is not his own, for how long, and loads himself with pledges, will not your debtors suddenly arise, and those who uh, awake, uh, I'm sorry, those who awake will make you tremble? Then you will be a spoil for them, because you have plundered many nations, and the remnant of the people shall plunder you for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Uh, guys, like I told you last week, I am not a, uh, I'm not a writer, okay, but um, I, I have my own issues, uh, and I do sometimes cast woes on, on people. Um, it usually happens when I'm driving. So um, I have written a, a poem here, a short poem that I'd like to share with you. Um, please do not take offense to it or make fun of me for it, but I wrote a poem. I'm going to share it with you. This is me driving every day. Woe to you, beamers, all shiny and white. You dash and you dart, and you pass on the right. But in your frantic trot, you have neglected to see. Blue and red lights are coming for thee. Woe to you, Buicks, who ride their left lane. At 60 miles per hour, you drive me insane. Unknowingly forcing my blood pressure higher, I secretly hope a nail finds your tire. <laughs> Woe to the Jeep who turns without signal or care, with roof wide open and wind in your hair. To other drivers, you have stopped without cause. And now your rear bumper has numerous flaws. Woe to you, Honda, on a mission you ride. With kiddos in tow, to soccer you glide. You ignore the red triangle which beckons to yield. And another car pushes you into the wrong field. Woe to you, Camry, who stands here in rhymes. Seeming completely innocent and free of all crimes. For indeed you are guilty of all that's been said. May these woes land squarely upon your balding head. Fun. Fun times. That took me three days. No, I'm kidding. 
God is going to proclaim these woes. And these woes are designed for a reason. They are designed to show us that we sow exactly what we reap. In these first verses here, he says, Woe to those who heap up what is not their own for how long? He loads himself up with pledges. This idea of pledges is actually biting. Biting pieces off slowly. You are becoming full. You are becoming engorged. You're a glutton. Storing things up here. Will not your debtors suddenly arise? What God is doing here with, with, the, with Habakkuk telling him about the Babylonians is, listen, Babylon, your city is about the size of Chicago. And your land right now is about the size of, well, it's larger than California, Washington, Oregon, Idaho, Nevada, Utah, Arizona, and Montana combined. And you've got Chicago. You have a big problem. You have gathered up what's not your own. You have overstretched your reach. And someday, those people will rise up against you. And they will call for what has been taken from them. The robbers will be robbed. The question that God is asking Babylon is a nation's faith in its wealth and its size. Is a nation's faith in its wealth and its size. Verse 9, woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. Uh, I, I thought about a, uh, a chess board here. And you guys play chess? Raise your hand, you play chess. Who's in the front? Who, who's on the front line? The pawns, right? Pawns in a game. You lose a pawn, you're like, eh, not a big deal. Unless you're a grandmaster and you know, you know, pawn structure and setup, and you realize that pawns are actually really important. But for most of us, we're like, yeah, they can only really move one space at a time. They can only move forward. Um, you know, at the beginning, they can move two spaces. You can do some crazy French things with them sometimes. Um, but for the most part, they are protecting your valuable pieces at the beginning of the game. They are the front line. God says, woe to you who set your nest on high to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house, cutting off many other people. You have forfeited your life, for your stones will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the woodwork responds. Listen to this. The walls of Babylon, the walls of Babylon were so large, they were so wide, that they would hold chariot races on top of of the walls of Babylon. Very easily you could race two chariots side by side on the top of the walls of Babylon. Some say it could go four chariots wide. Talk about a death match, right? You're on top of a huge wall. The bricks that the Babylonians had, everybody else was using mud bricks. They were using them the way that the Egyptians used them, okay? They were making it from mud and straw, the Babylonians would superheat their bricks. These were the strongest bricks ever made to this point, And the wall was full of them. They built tremendous defenses. Were you an invading army and you came to the city of Babylon, you would look at those walls and say, yeah, maybe next year. And you'd walk away. They were so imposing. They set up for themselves safety. 
The stones will cry out from the wall, the beams from the woodwork. What God is telling us here is that their fortresses will be forfeited someday. Their fortresses will be forfeited some way. The question that God is asking, is a nation's faith in its defense or its security? Verse 12, woe to him who builds a town on blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, this is not from the Lord of hosts, that people labor merely for fire, and that nations weary themselves for nothing. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge and the glory of the Lord as the waters overcome Uh, The waters cover the sea. God says to Habakkuk here of the Chaldeans, he's saying, listen, if you use oppression, if you use violence to establish a city, you are not long for this world. You're going to be gone. And guess what? All of your efforts, everything that you're doing, the end of them is fire and nothing. How many of you guys have seen the city of Babylon today? There, there's pieces of it here and there. Uh, the Germans, um, what they did was uh, they took one of the, the greatest gates. Uh, their, their archaeologists took one of the greatest gates, took all of the stones and rebuilt it in a museum in Berlin. The Ishtar Gate, it's beautiful. It's blue, it's gold, it's got a ton of ornate things on it. Um, it, is, it is a work of art. Saddam Hussein, Saddam Hussein led a huge reclamation effort to rebuild Babylon. If you look at where his palace is, he could look right out his window and see where the city of Babylon used to be. And he started rebuilding it. Why? Because it's gone. It's nothing. There is no more. See, the nations of this world think they're building something. The nations of this world think they're establishing something. The nations of this world have put their faith in themselves, in their might, in their power, in their defense, and in themselves. And God says, this is not of me. This is of you, and this is the result of your labor. Fire, nothing, you're gone. Nobody remembers you. The book of Ecclesiastes talks about that. The fact that no one will remember you. Maybe a generation, maybe two generations, but then you're gone. The only thing that lasts is the Lord. I'm going to meddle a bit here. Because I think this is key for us. Where's our faith? I mean, we talk about these nations' faith, right? We're going to see one more in a second, one more, um, uh, maybe one or two more woes here. Um, But where is our faith? Is it in our nation? Listen, I'm just going to be honest with you guys. Today in the news, you know, our nation has great moments, and then our nation has moments where it's kind of drugged through the mud a bit. And we talk about our history as a nation. And we talk about what we did to the Native Americans. And we talk about um, slavery in the United States and, and what happened there. And there is this propensity to say, oh no, guess what, we're terrible. Or somebody says, we want to make America great again, right? 
Guys, if you look back at every man-made national movement, incursion, war, violence, every nation of the world, it's always the same story. Violence, oppression, death, rape, pillaging. Um, it, is, it is fraught with it. Any nation of the world. You pick up a nation of the world that exists today and you're going to find war, pestilence. You're going to find uh, iniquity. You're going to find sin of all kind. All unrighteousness. And such is common to Babylon here. As they were sitting, drinking, enjoying themselves, the writing was on the wall. Verse 15, woe to him who makes his neighbor drink. You pour out your wrath and you make him drunk. In order to gaze at their nakedness, you will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself, show yourself your uncircumcision. The cup of the Lord's right hand will come around to you. We get an ugly picture here. We get a picture of exactly what was going on in Belshazzar's throne room that day. A drunken orgy. They were drinking so that someone maybe got drunk enough that they would start to undress for some reason. It's too hot. I don't know. See, wine makes us do things that we wouldn't normally do. This verse here, um, in, in the end of verse 16, it says, An utter shame will come upon your glory. God says you will show your uncircumcision. Again, this is, a, this is a double meaning here. He's saying, listen, not only will you be naked and show everyone your most intimate parts and the fact that those most intimate parts are, are uncircumcised and shame will come upon you, but he's basically saying your inner self will be laid bare and revealed. You're not just uncircumcised on the outside. You're uncircumcised in your heart. This is what Daniel says to Belshazzar. He says, listen, you saw not only the writing on the wall, you saw exactly what your father did and you did not change your ways. This idea of utter shame is the idea of vomiting. Vomiting all over, everywhere. Putridness. Filth, disgust. In the middle of your party, you're having a great time, you're drinking, you're living it up, and all of a sudden it's like, oh no, maybe one too many. Body is saying full, and I'm full. Vomit, utter shame, disgust. You know, when you vomit, people don't generally gather around you, unless they're a really good friend and they're going to hold your hair or what. They don't have to hold my hair. Um, when you vomit, you know, people don't generally gather around you. When I was in grade school, we had linoleum floors, okay? We'd be sitting in our desks, and all of a sudden, you would hear it coming. You'd hear that kid go, mm, mm. and all of a sudden, the next noise you would hear are desks just sliding away. And then cream corn hitting the linoleum. It's gross. The janitor would come in with the sawdust, or what, I don't know what that sawdust is, but he'd come in, put it on there, and everybody would move away. Disgusting. That's what God says. God says, listen, your glory will be turned to shame. You will be utterly embarrassed. You 
will be the lowest of the low. You went from the highest of the high to the lowest of the low. Verse 17, and violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you. Uh, right here, for those of you who don't know history, we're going to move quickly. History, Babylon had a revolt in Tyre, which is in Lebanon. They surrounded Tyre for 13 years and besieged it. The people of Tyre were starving. They were dying off at an alarming rate until finally they had to give in. God is giving a sneak peek into what Babylon is eventually going to do. Have done to Babylon will overwhelm you, as will destruction of beasts that terrified them for the blood of man and violence of the earth to the cities and all who dwell in them. Again, remember Jonah and much cattle here, right? We got much cattle at the end. He says, listen, you're not only doing violence to, to people and to nations, but also to animals. You care nothing for nothing. God asks the question, he says, is a nation's faith in its pleasures of perversion? Is that where the nation finds its faith? Is it in iniquity? Is it in sin? Is it in perversion? And the conclusion of the vision here, he says, what prophet is an idol when its maker shapes it? A metal image, a teacher of lies, a maker trusts in his own creation when he makes, for, for it's a maker's trust in his own creation when he makes a speechless idol. What God is saying here is that, listen, people, you're making dumb dummies. They can't speak. There's nothing in them. You're making wood, metal. You're making these idols. And you're worshiping them. Daniel chapter 5, right after they're done drinking and they bring everything in, all of, the, all of the, the artifacts that they found in the temple of Jerusalem, it says they worship their gods of wood, of stone, of metal, of anything that they made. God says to Habakkuk here, listen, these idols that you've brought up, they're nothing. The creator, the maker of these idols, his only trust is in these idols. Verse 9, woe to him says, him who says to a wooden thing, awake, to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it's overlaid with gold and silver, and there's no breath in it. It's covered. It doesn't have the ability to breathe. He's saying not only is it not alive, it doesn't even have air holes. You've covered it with metal, with gold. It can't breathe. It's impossible. What did God do um, to Israel with the, with the golden calf? Made him eat it, right? Melted it down, made them drink it. Eat it. A worthless piece of metal. Sure, it was gold, in God's eyes, worthless. Behold, it's overlaid with gold and silver and there's no breath in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before him. The vision ends here with a stark contrast. What God is saying is, listen, it's not just the idols of wood and gold and silver that you have created. It's the idols of safety. It's the idols of lust and perversion. It's the idols of power and oppression 
It's the idols of thinking you are greater than you actually are. And you're worshiping these things that are leading you the wrong way. They are unable to teach. They are unable to direct you on the right path. You have become the creator of these things that are worthless. Only in your own eyes are they profitable. I am of pure eyes, God says. I see things as they really are. And the end of all of these things, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let the earth keep silent before him. See, the difference between God and all of these other idols, the difference between the faith that we put in God versus the faith that anyone puts out in anything else, is that our God brings life. Our God is able to teach. Our God has breath in him. He is alive. And we worship the creator and not the created. See, in Babylon's eyes, the things that can't speak are to be worshipped. In God's eyes, when his word goes forth, when his gift is given, that is what is to be listened to. That is what we are to put our faith in. Nothing else, not our strength, not our defenses, not our power, not our nation, not the lust of the flesh, the, you know, the pride of life, none of those things. The only thing we put our faith in is the word of God. The system that the nations of the world have put together is broken. And ultimately someday, as we will read next week, ultimately someday, this broken system will be broken. Guys, you are um, you're living in a difficult time. I'm not going to lie to you. You're, you're living in a difficult time. But realize, if God is not on the throne reigning on this earth, it's a difficult time. It's been a difficult time. How do we navigate as Christians in this world of difficulty? Where do we put our faith? I, guys, I'm going to be honest with you. We have to keep checking our own selves. We have to keep checking our heart. We have to say, listen, did I wake up this morning knowing that the Lord has something great for me today? That his word is going to change my life? That I am going to be transformed by the renewing of my mind? Is that the first thought that I had in the morning? Or was it, you know, what does my bank account look like today? How are my kids doing? Are they going to be safe today? Is my nation going to be here tomorrow? Is my world falling apart? Habakkuk is facing this. He started this process saying, my world is falling apart. And God is changing his heart through the vision. Let God's word change your heart. Do not put your faith in anything else other than the word of God. Let's pray. Father God, you are holy. God, we love you. Lord, you know all things and you search all things. God, you know the plans that you have for not only us, but for this world, God. Lord, let us not get distracted by the injustice that we see in this world. Let us 
Expect it, God. Lord, you have told us that until you are reigning on high, on this earth, Lord, over everyone, and you have removed sin, God, I just pray, Lord, that we would realize that our faith and trust needs to always be in you. Not what we see, not what we perceive, not what we think to be the right thing like Habakkuk did. Lord, that our hearts would be softened, that we wouldn't be puffed up in pride as the Babylonians were. God, our nation is broken. Lord, every nation around the world is broken. God, it doesn't matter if we're Republican, Democrat, whatever. If we don't know you, we're broken. We're going the wrong direction. Each one is doing what's right in his own eyes. Lord, change our hearts. Use your word to cause us to run. Not only run in fear of what you are doing, but running to tell others. Let us see patience as a gift from you. Let us see waiting as a gift from you. Lord, that you have a bigger plan, that you have a perfect plan. Lord, our life is not going to be easy if we know you. Lord, because the world hated you, it will hate us. God, let us expect that of this world. Lord, but still, let us be in this world, but not of it. In Jesus' name, amen.